Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hello and welcome everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you wherever you're joining us from. Um, I'm Tina Shoah. I'm visiting professor at NYU Abu Dhabi in art and art history. And I'd like to thank the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute and Al Mourad Arab Center for the Study of Art uh, for organizing this talk um, today. It gives me great pleasure and an honor to introduce Lawrence Abu Hamdan. Um, Lawrence Abu Hamdan is a private ear. His interest is with sound and its intersection with politics originate from his background as a touring musician and a facilitator of DIY music. The artist's audio investigations have been used as evidence at the UK Asylum and Immigration Tribunal as advocacy for organizations such as Amnesty International and Defense for Children International, together with fellow researchers from forensic architecture. Abu Hamdan completed his PhD in 2017 from Goldsmith College, University of London. He has exhibited his work at the 58th uh, Venice Binali, the 11th Guangzhou Binali, and the 13th and 14th Sharjah Binali. The Wit the Wit uh, Rotterdam, Tate Modern Tanks, Chisendale Gallery, Hammer Museum LA, the Portofist in, in Frankfurt, the Showroom London, and the Casco in Utrecht. His works are part of collections at the MoMA, Guggenheim, the Van Abba Museum, the Centre Pompidou, and Tate Modern. Abu Handan has also been awarded in 2019 the Edward Munch Art Award, in 2016 the Nam John Cook Award for New Media, and in 2017 his film Rubber Coated Steel won the Tiger Short Film Award at the Rotterdam International Film Festival. For the 2019 Turner Prize, Abu Hamdan, together with the nominated artists, formed a temporary collective in order to be jointly granted the award. It gives me great pleasure this evening, um, or afternoon or morning, wherever you are, um, to, uh, to have uh, Lawrence Abu Hamdan with us. Um, and I will hand over uh, to you for this talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tina, for uh, that introduction. Um, and thank you so much to Salwa and Maha at the Maurad and the Institute for uh, hosting this event. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to be today speaking about one work. Um, it's a kind of, it's a reflection on a work I made in 2019 called Once Removed. Uh, it's a film. Um, and that film is a portrait of a, of a man called Basil Abishaheen. And the, the kind of, the, the sort of essay I've written um, is a set of reflections on uh, the making of that film, being what I learned from Basil since making that film and listening to, to what he told me during the process of making that film. And also thinking about, and together with Basil, what, uh, what, uh, you know, thinking ab about the unfolding situation uh, in Lebanon. This is a work that concerns Le uh, Lebanon. So, um, yeah, what has happened since making that film in 2019 is also a kind of key feature of this 
presentation today. So let me just uh, prepare my screen. Okay, I will start. Unset pink jelly teetering between solid and liquid in cases formerly tinned brine gloss mechanically cubed fruit uneasily wobbling atop sits a layer of cream or maybe they are whipped eggs they taste of the contents of the fridge in which they were stored overnight hidden and submerged in this mix are sodden croutons which would go otherwise unnoticed if they did not cake to the roof of your mouth slowing the speed at which one needs to quickly swallow each spoonful Every year, I tell my aunt that it is delicious. It is not delicious. So, Basil, what's your book about? My book is about the... So, Basil, what's your book about? My book is about the Progressive Socialist Party, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. It's a history and a factorial book and a photography book that uh, shows and expresses the images and it's, uh, it speaks for itself. And how long did you take to get all these photographs together? It took me about 10 years, since 2008. I've been acquiring and collecting these images. It was at the same aunt's table with an unspeakably disgusting dessert awaiting us, that I first met Basil, who is the son of my aunt's husband's niece. The son of my aunt's husband's niece. We found ourselves sitting across from one another, and being that we are the same age, my aunt sought to break the silence between us. Lawrence, she said, Tarifin no Basil nate, which would be translated directly as Lawrence. Did you know that Basil has vocalized? Natak is the Arabic word for uh, vocalization, as it refers to the physical act of speaking. I can't think of another word in English that would match it, but it's a word specifically that refer to the physical act of speaking. Um, in that particular familial situation, as it is in all Druze households, the word means something quite different. Natak is used explicitly to refer to a form of speech that is impossible to explain by any other means than reincarnation. So that would be in English what is called xenoglossy, referring to speech that has not been learned, testimony unknown to the individual under conventionally explainable conditions. So xenoglossy is when you know somebody wakes up and suddenly they can they wake up, wake up from a coma and they speak they can speak Mandarin. Uh, these kind of stories that would be referred to as xenoglossy, as well as the uh, speech of a reincarnated subject. My translation, a suggestion of, uh, of a translation for natak, is impossible speech because it is defined by its impossibility uh, at two stages of its utterance. Um, in order for it to be credibly xenoglossy, in order for it to be credibly 
uh, natak, actually uh, a kind of uh, speech of a reincarnated person, it must be impossible to exist under any other conditions, i.e. it cannot be learned, it cannot be known, it cannot have been overheard and repeated. It has to really have come only through the transmigration of those memories to that person. So that's how it's credibly defined as impossible, but also it's impossible uh, under the current terms by which history and the law are produced. And the conventions of kind of legitimate speech determine this as kind of irrational. So irrational or impossible uh, is, is, is what I think could be an interesting way to think about a natak in this context, an impossible speech. Though I could translate my aunt's words in more simple terms, Lawrence, did you know that Basil is reincarnated instead of saying Basil has vocalized? However, reincarnation in Arabic is taqammus, derived from the word amis, qamis, literally it means a change of shirt. She did not use that word as she believes in continuity with the dogma that we all reincarnate, that we all change our shirts, that every soul transmigrates but only a few remember the passage. The more unexpected and violent the death, the more the memories of one's life leak into the next. So though all souls return, only those who suffered violent ends can speak to that return. So natak does not really refer to the reincarnation of the soul, but the transmigration of speech from the dead to the living. And natak refer to the transmigration of speech from the dead to the living. What's also interesting about natak, as we're on this idea of its translated form, and we're going to see throughout this talk that other things could also be, we're going to see many articulations of what a natak could be, or what, uh, what Basil's nata became. But um, natak in Arabic is also used in the sense of a compulsion to speak. Um, so when somebody, you know, when a cat has somebody's tongue, as they say in English, you would say to the person, untuk, right? Like spit it out, untuk. It refer to just getting any, make any sound. doesn't matter, you know, break the silence. So in that sense, it referred to the kind of compulsion to speak. And that's a really important thing to keep in our minds as we move through this um, talk. It's also not a coincidence that natak is used to, to refer to the transmigration of speech from the dead to the living, because if you remember that it's about the physical act of speaking, it essentially means it's speech incarnate. So it's the return of the body to a voice. It's the return of a voice to its body. To be perfectly honest, at the moment of my aunt's exclamation, I did not have any other reaction than to politely feign surprise in the general direction of Basel. This may be because the last time I heard someone not it, it was a distant relative's extremely long and extremely elderly recounting of a story that culminated with the anticlimactic memory of her daughter in her previous life having a particular fondness for chiclets. For many of us who grew up in this environment, reincarnation is not in and of itself an exceptional event. That is not to say that I had never heard a natak that was alarming and compelling. But before I met Basel, I had never heard a natak that awoke me to the particular political possibilities of a speech that is conventionally considered impossible.
When were you born? March uh, 27, 1987. You were born 1987, and when did uh, Yusuf al Jauhari die, you and your previous life? February 26, 1984. So when was you, as Yusuf al Jauhari, born? 1967. Yusuf al Jauhari was just 14 when he was transferred from the scouts to fight for the militia of the Progressive Socialist Party. At the age of 17, he was killed during the 1984 Shuf War. By virtue of who Basil was in his past life, he acts as an indictment against the leadership of the PSP, the party for which Yusuf fought and died. As the memories of a child soldier are uttered, the memories of war criminals who are still to this day in power, most notably Wali Jumblad and Akram Shayyib, are inevitably revived. Basil does not intend to go after these people, though by simply uttering the memories that have transmigrated to him, and by meeting his fellow and family soldiers from his past life, evidence is revealed substantiating the PSP's use of child soldiers in paramilitary operations and indirectly, therefore, accuses them of violating international law because, of course, it is inter inter uh, internationally against international law to use um, children's soldiers. So that's just to set it up that just in the return of this voice, already a crime is announced. Crime is put on the table, right? What we do with that crime, how we deal with that crime, is a totally other question. Because, so, so, but, but it's important to remember a crime is on the table because that starts to mean that this already has implications, legal implications, potentially, right? So now the use, of, though the use of child soldiers is illegal, I do not want to make the assumption that those legally defined as children under the age of 18 had no agency to decide to fight for something they believe in. The militia in question was aligned with global leftist solidarity movements and was battling the rise of American imperialism. So you could imagine why a young teenager might want to fight for something aligned to uh, the... Uh, 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 liberation of Palestine, something aligned to the Black Panthers movement um, and other global leftist movements at the time. So I'm not trying to remove the potential that this is just simply a desire to fight for something one believes in. Um, so th though it is a crime that is illegal by international law, human rights does not help us fully adjudicate on whether the use of children in this context signals systemic abuse of power. Rather, to understand what or if any abuse of children took place, we would need to know how many child soldiers fought and died. We need to speak to about the roles the children played in their units, to what extent the leadership knew or had a clear picture of the use of children. And to do this, we would need a path to adjudication investigation, which begin with those who lost children and those children who fought and today survive. And to understand from them what drove them to fight and who they were. However, such an investigation and such evidence as the use of child soldiers that Basil's testimony provokes has today no legal forum in which to be discussed or adjudicated. Their part in the war, whether ideological or coerced, will remain absent from history. Because an amnesty was established in Lebanon for all crimes perpetrated before March 28, 1991. This is a kind of return of an amnesty that actually was signed in 1958 
a reincarnation of a of an existing amnesty. And this, but this one in 1991 precluded any possibility to pursue legal actions for crimes committed during the civil war, and therefore exonerated the leaders of all the factions who were involved. This obliterated the possibility to create a consensus or any verifiable understanding of recent events and how we arrive at where we are now uh, today. It forced truth to be fractured into a thousand pieces. And so today each person is armed with their own unverifiable truths. So amnesty doesn't really silence the history of the war. Rather, it filled the country with the noise of millions of simultaneously competing histories that create clouds of misinformation and inherited half-truths. And this is what has allowed these same militia leaders to remain in power of their respective wards nearly 30 years after the official end of the war. They passed a law that initially seemed intended to produce national reconciliation, but has instead been an agent that solidified sectarian division. In the name of sectarian protection and the maintenance of peace, these militia leaders have turned municipalities into territories for exploitation, each profiteering from essential services and basic infrastructure as payment for the protection from the imminence of the next civil war. This imminent war idea, this creation of an imminent war, creates the condition that citizens need protecting from each other, hiding the reality that they actually need protecting from their own so-called leaders and their harmful and often lethal practices of corruption and cronyism, as we really clearly saw on the August 4th explosion. This amnesty law means that there is no legal form in which Basel testimony from his past life as a failed child soldier can be adjudicated. However, even if such a forum would be established, if we had that legal forum, if we had that possibility, that path to justice, if that path to justice was open, would the logic of the crime, the crime itself, as it is currently understood, be applicable to the temporality that a reincarnated life occupied? For though Yusuf al-Johri was killed, can we consider a returned person murdered in the same way? Do, do the returned ever really die? Can the memories of one person living in the body of another constitute a single legal person accountable under the law as we know it? Can their wrongs be compensated under the same terms that the law allows for? And if they can have no legal recourse, and in fact, if they never really die, or if the law is unable to process such claims, then what kind of justice could the returned seek? And for me, this is one of the most important questions that I ask myself with this whole project. Not, not how this could enter forums for, ex uh, for, for the existing adjudication of crimes, but how can this itself, how could the return create a path or create a category of testimony that actually seeks to produce a wholly different kind of justice? What kind of justice could the returned seek? And this is a question that perhaps even more threatening to those who have used the law as a means to uphold and protect their autonomy, because if the justice they seek is outside of the frame of the law, then the people who have used the law as a means to protect their autonomy will not be protected from it. So these aforementioned leaders, like this one, Wali Jumblad, made sure the dead could not speak, by example, hiding mass graves, the location of graves, 
They have used the amnesty as a legal instrument to ensure that those who survived the war don't really speak or have a relevant uh, uh, space to speak. But no one, they've also ensured that the kids growing up will never learn about the, the war because there's no, uh, nothing in, in school textbooks. So they've, they've technically sealed the, 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 the learning about the past those who were there and still survive, and, and those who seek to learn about it and were not born, those, those of the future generation. But none of them have effectively thought about those who may return. Reincarnated testimony, reincarnated testimony pose a very particular threat precisely because it operates outside the law and outside the forms of witnessing that have been blocked by legal instruments and political maneuvering. The threat is further amplified in Basil's case because he is not only the return of Yusuf al-Jawhari, the felled child soldier who fought in Jumblad's militia, his flashbacks to a time in which he himself did not live have compelled Basil to become an obsessive autodidact historian. A young man pushed to find traces of his own existence used his reincarnation to amass not only information on his own life, but the largest archive of photography, weaponry, uniforms, flags and badges of the Shufor and the entire militia of the Progressive Socialist Party. All the images I've been showing up to this point are in fact sourced by Basel, and all the images I will show in this talk. Basel has become a historical resource. He holds vital information for anyone hoping to understand the historical record of a time which has been cancelled from history. And this is why Wali Jumblad schedules regular catch-up meetings with Basel under the pretense of support for his work, which actually serve to see what he has uncovered and what he intends to publish in his forthcoming books. I mean, that's a, that's a speculation. And I say why it's a speculation, because he continually schedules these meetings with Basel only to cancel them at the last minute. And it's these kind of missed encounters that I think is, 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 um, is a sort of uh, a strategy, a strategy that we might understand as the more we move through the kind of particular politics of this event. So constantly, the leader of this progressive social body constantly scheduling these meetings and then canceling them at the last minute. Basil's first flashbacks to his life as the child soldier, Yusuf Jauhari, happened at Arlington Cemetery, the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, DC. He was five years old. Perhaps this geographically dislocated flashback was due to the fact that despite being Lebanese, he had never up to that point been to Lebanon. From the day he visited the cemetery, Basil began endlessly drawing Arlington. Yet the more he drew it, the more Arlington started to transform. His own name started to appear on the graves and the Lebanese flag replaced the star-spangled banner. Of course, no such memorial as monumental as Arlington exists in Lebanon, for all the reasons I've just described. Yet years later, when Basil was 21, he did go searching for his name, Yusuf's name, on a marble-clad martyr's memorial in the western part of the town of Alay, not far from where he died in his previous life, some 24 years prior. Arriving there, he found his name, but the date of his death was wrong. The tombstone read 1989, not 1984. He approached the authorities responsible for the memorial and asked them if they would consider correcting the mistake. 
They told him that many similar complaints had been made, that most of the dates were wrong, that many family names had been misspelled, and even names of people who were still alive were erroneously etched into the marble. Finding that neither official sources of memorialization nor his own memories were adequate or comprehensive, Basil began to devote more of his time into looking for traces of his former existence. He began collecting martyr's posters from that period, hoping to find a correct record of his own death and an image of who he used to be. After collecting and scouring dozens of posters, he found no trace of Yusuf. However, he did unearth, through a family contact, one of the militia's key graphic designers and poster printers. The now elderly designer gave Basil free reign amongst his disordered remnants. Amongst the old defective prints, flags, and never-released designs, he eventually found one in which Yusuf's name appeared. Though here the date of his death was correct, the space where his image would normally appear was blank. So it's here. And here you see a close-up. Yusuf Ajohari. Yeah. Sorry, here. Yusuf Fuad Jauhari. It's very small on my screen. And then here the date is death. Basil left the designer's house only, not only with this poster, but with as many of the half-discarded posters, flags, and badges as he could carry. Basil still sought to procure his own image. Up to that point, he had not yet visited his parents from his past life. But inevitably, one day, Basil knocked on the door of the Jauhari family home in Hamdoun. His former sister opened. Basil announced who he was and who he had been, and he was quickly welcomed inside. The elderly man sitting on the balcony, Fuad al-Jauhari, Yusuf's father, rose to shake his hand and told him, I've been waiting for you. Fuad gave, him the, gave Basil the uniforms Yusuf wore during the war and the rifle he had used. And when Basil inquired if there was a photograph he could have, Fuad, his former father, explained that the only existing image they had of Yusuf was an out-of-focus black-and-white image taken when he was five or six years old, adding that Yusuf hated having his picture taken. This is actually Yusuf's older brother. Um, I uh, forget his name, but um, he also died uh, during the war. So this is you in the clothes of you in a past life, right? Yes. And, and again, your father in a past life gave, gave you the, the uniform that you died in or yes. just that you were fighting in? Or? He gave me the, my clothes of my past life. And what was it like to kind of like get in the costume of you in a previous life? What did it do? What did it do? I don't know, it was scary. It was scary. In what sense? Like you feel like the person's still there. Right. Like you're reliving it. And this image? This is the only existing picture I have of myself. But I don't know how old I am. According to what they told me, this is six or seven, I'm guessing. Maybe, I'm guessing. Thinking that maybe his ex-comrades from the war in Ile might have a picture of Yusuf, Basil began to locate and interview whomsoever he had known. 
This is how he began accessing and archiving personal photographs and collecting memorabilia of many ex-fighters across Lebanon. Starting with people who had fought and trained with Yusuf, and then people who had fought and trained with those people, and then people who had fought and trained with those people, and so on and so forth, until he created a network across the mountains of ex-fighters and their family members. Basil's reincarnation has given him access. His reincarnation and his research are inseparable. His reincarnation and his research are inseparable. If an ordinary bona fide university historian were to show up at these houses asking for such documents, they would be told that none exist. But as a returned fallen comrade, Basil is treated differently. He is, after some explaining, welcome to see, then eventually for the most part archive this material amongst a community of those who believe in reincarnation. So Basil is in a unique position to traverse a silence. And uh, that comes from the fact that he was both there at the time of the war and also not there, right? That's the power of Basil's position, just kind of being both there and not there. Um, so in a way, um, not having really been there, being the return of Yusuf Ajohari, not being Yusuf Ajohari himself, um, Basil avoids what Walid Sadiq would, would, would call the witness who knows too much. It's the, the kind of unbearable witness, the, the witness who, who knows too much to speak. And yet, Basil is also not, uh, not there in terms of my generation. He, he isn't part of, of uh, a people who are totally sort of post-amnesty and silenced by this uh, condition. So he's in, he's in a very unique position to, to, to traverse the silence that spans these two generations. One silenced by the necessity and responsibility to avoid stirring up a sectarian past, while the other silenced by the absence of historical teaching and cognizance of the war. So Basil feels both the confounding historical erasure of a young Lebanese who grew up in post-amnesty Lebanon, but simultaneously has flashbacks to the war as lucid as though he were still in its midst. The reincarnated historian straddles a generational divide and in some small way, his natak makes formerly impossible dialogue possible. The impossible speech of natak makes formerly impossible dialogue possible. You got given a lot of personal photographs of people. Yeah, basically. And how did that come about? How did they give you the, this? I would approach people, tell them I'm working on a project on making a book. And is it okay if you're willing to help by providing me with photos? First of all, they would get a bit uh, insecure and tell me we don't have photos and why do you need photos? And they'd get a bit alarmed at first. After you opened the subject about being reincarnated and who you were and they'd mellow down and then they'd invite you in and then they'll show you and then they'll help you out. It took a lot of work to be honest. It's, it wasn't easy. That's, that's one thing I could tell you. Most of the people who had these images either burnt them or destroyed them. So that's but in Basil's words, how his reincarnation and his research are inseparable, it essentially has given him access to a material that is otherwise inaccessible 
um, to people, has been hidden, has been destroyed. And even though Basil has, has access to this material, he must keep much of his archive hidden from public view. For while his interest is in documenting the uniforms these people wore, the units from which this militia was composed, the weapons they used and the locations they trained, paraded in battle, his archive also contains rare videographic and photographic evidence of war crimes, torture, and massacres. Such images cannot surface under the current conditions in Lebanon without the groundwork needing for undoing the sectarian system. And so these images, for example, are the first in a series of images. Just after these images, we see things that we are in a visual territory that we should not enter. I will not be showing you what comes after these images, not because of the violence they contain, but because these images are not the kind of evidence I'm arguing for here. It's not Basel's images, but Basel himself that is the evidence. His work is testament to the conditions that produced him to become a witness, a collector, a returned historian. The amnesty, the corruption, the sectarianism, these have created a kind of perfect storm for the production of Basel as a witness. They have blocked all other pathways to meaningfully speak about the past, and therefore the politically elite have unintentionally forged a new path for such stories to emerge. Basel is the evidence, but he's not the evidence to the crimes of the war, but to the crimes by which peace has been secured, has been forcibly secured. And none of this is, this is more, the most evident in Basel's latest work, which is titled Shot Twice. Basel's new book contains pictures he has taken of contemporary Lebanon, placed side by side with photographs from the archive he has procured from ex-fighters. Throughout the spring and summer of 2019, Basel made over 100 before and after images. And it was the intensification of a strategy he had been using since 2008 to help him trigger memories from his past life as the teenage soldier, Yusuf Ajohari, who died in the 1984-24, as I explained before. So this almost perfectly, so, so I'll, I'll kind of just narrate a couple of these before and after images because they really become incredible uh, parts of his natak. These, uh, these images I really consider to be uh, part of what we could consider a natak, the kinds of artifacts of a, uh, that his nata is producing. This almost perfectly aligned diptych shows a road once occupied by a militia checkpoint that now allows for, now allows for the free flow of traffic. A leap in time from war to peace happens then in a single frame transition. Yet as I scan back and forth from war to peace, peace to war, a detail emerges that warps this otherwise linear trajectory of progress. You see, it seems they had street lights in the days of the war, whereas here on this same strip, not a single street light is working. And it's not just the lights, there's potholes in the road. This sign is sadly sagged in its poles. And of the little we knew of the war, the one thing that my generation was consistently led to believe is that it was a time of chaos, pure chaos and instability. We've been told that we need protecting from the fearsome specter of this civil war. 
And although Bess's historical work speaks of the transmigration of souls, images like this tell us that he is not the one telling the ghost stories. In 1986, the People's Militia, the People's Liberation Army, sorry, had joined together with Harakat al-Amal to, to form a military police strike force that controlled West Beirut. 33 years later, their trace has been more or less erased. You see, this building here, which is full of bullet holes, has now been cladded anew. The, the bullet holes that punctured the, are, are kind of cladded, uh, are, are kind of hidden uh, beneath this surface, this new surface, the, the new shell the building has. And this man and his anti-aircraft artillery is also no longer visible. He too has been subsumed underneath the surface. So the wall upon which he sits here, which is here now, is the exterior of a building that presently hosts a unit of parliamentary guards. And there is a direct line of descent from this joint strike force to the parliamentary guards. Because the parliamentary guards were formed in 91, when each of Lebanon's warlords institutionalized their former militia fighters into the post-war security and military sector. So the parliamentary guards are under the control of the Speaker of Parliament, who since 1992 has been Nabih Berri. Nabih Berri, together with Walid Jumblat, formed the militia for whom this man fought in 1986. So a direct connection there. This before and after image then does not display the disappearance of the militias from the streets of Beirut, but rather the process of them becoming embedded, sedimented, and swallowed from the surface to the interior. And it is from this interior where they continue to exert sectarian violence. On August 8, 2020, from behind parliamentary walls, peering out from parliamentary windows, these guards fired live rounds at the unarmed protesters who gathered outside parliament to demonstrate against the ammonium nitrate massacre. So I've spent many hours on this street because I had a studio for two years in this pink building. And though I've never eaten at this restaurant here, uh, and I've uh, never been to this strip club here, I have once and only once bought an espresso from a coffee stand at the end of the road, which is here, which would be here in the before image. I say I only once bought an espresso from there because in the middle of my order, I realized that it uh, almost exclusively served armed Harakat al-Amal members. It was actually a Harakat al-Amal kind of outpost. I sheepishly paid and didn't come back. Though the location of where the coffee stand would be erected years later is present in the before image here. In Basel's after image, the coffee stand is conspicuously absent. It's out of frame. It was with good reason that Basel chose not to provocatively point his camera directly at the militia's outpost. It is populated by people who are armed, threatening, and threatened. Documenting them so directly would likely see the destruction of Basel's camera and the abuse of the photographer. Though today we feel a fear towards the documentation of these people, it seems that the militia members in the past had a totally different relationship to the camera. They were acutely aware of their role as the subject of the image. Here they're throwing up victory signs. What we do not yet know is that one day they too would need to be redacted from, from the image. What they did not yet know at this time is that one day they too would need to be redacted from the image, just as Basel has redacted these people that exist today. 
In the flip from before and after here, we see a compression of space, which forces Basel's lens much closer to the still standing Hakim Automotive building. And when Basel takes this photo in 2019 from this spot here, which is, I guess, here in the old picture, um, he no longer has the kind of uh, distance, not the vacant space required to restage the image. Building and zoning laws have been under a continually renewed state of exception since they were first implemented. And this was in order to help boost post-war reconstruction. The terminal extension of the state of exception has caused rapid densification and acceleration of urban developments that have greatly enriched landowners and, and people with connections uh, to uh, people who occupy positions in parliament. Like Basel, these political leaders are also resurrected from the war. Former warlords now reincarnated as policymakers, reanimated as, as a, reanimated as a Frankenstein's monster, half politician, half property developer. And just over a year after Basel took this image, this SGBL bank building, this one here, now looked more like its wartime state than it did in 2019. So the August 4th explosion has returned the, this building to its vacated and windowless state. So we move between 1986 through 2019, only to arrive back at 2020. And this image perfectly, this kind of before and after image or this before, after, before image, either you know, perfectly encapsulates what I tried to set up before about how Basel's Natak speaks to the crimes of peace not to the crimes of the war. So either we accept a series of breaks, each issue isolated from the other, cul uh, each culprit separated by some conveniently ascribed context, or we accept a line of continuation, a collapse of time and events that Basel Nata presents us with. Either these are isolated incidents, this whatever blew out these windows during the war and whatever uh, returned it to the state in the August 4th uh, explosion that returned it to the state in, in 2020. So either these are isolated incidents, two isolated incidents that seem just happened to the same building in two different points in time, or they are the very same crime with the very same people who were responsible for the death of a child soldier at 17 are the same who have now stolen the future of almost all 17-year-olds growing up in Lebanon today. So though Basel's work pertains to his life in the past, his natak extends to the theft of the future. Okay, I'm just gonna skip ahead here um, to the concluding remarks. And how young were you when you started fighting? as young as 14 or 15. And so do you think you could have been one of these kids here? Because this is from Alay, right? I'm not 100% sure, but you never looked at the faces in the background and tried to identify if any of them were Yusuf al-Jawhari? I try, but it's hard to tell because I don't know how I looked like, and I still look for, till today, I still look for my picture. Mm. And I can't manage to find any pic, although, Many of my ex-friends or ex-colleagues or ex-fighters who used to fight with me say, you may have pictures of you in Ale if 
you go up and you search in Ale. But you don't know what you look like. No, so. I don't know what I look like. So I don't know how to figure out how I look like or how am I going to identify that myself. Unless somebody tells me this is you, that's another story. Brasson still has very little idea of what he looked like in his previous life. He may have an image of Yusuf in his vast archive, but without knowing what he looked like, he cannot identify himself amongst his collection. With the idea that we could try to see if indeed such a picture exists amongst Bass's collection, I approached Dr. Caroline Wilkinson at FaceLab, a research group at Liverpool's John Moores U University that carries out archaeological research and craniofacial uh, analysis and facial synthesis. I asked her if she could use the image of Yusuf as a six or seven-year-old child, as well as reference images of his brother, father, and mother, and reconstruct what he may have looked like at 17 years old. This was the result. The process she uses to create this image is often used in missing persons cases, particularly when someone goes missing as a child. She explained to me that she has had astonishing results. And most recently, she produced a facial synthesis of a woman from her skull alone. And by circulating this image to the public, an old neighbor identified that reconstruction as someone who she had known and who had disappeared many years prior. This is how the police were able to identify the body. Dr. Wilkinson explained to me that her success in such cases depend on staying within a tight threshold of recognition. The face has to be both specific enough to elicit the memories of those who have seen the face before, while also generic enough not to overstate any one specific characteristic for fear of throwing people off the trail of identifying them. It has to be a somewhat generic person's face with just enough signifiers that it could be the person they need identifying. So you need to open and activate the interpretive capacities of the viewer. And to do this, the faces also have to be somewhat digital. There must be enough digital artifacts like this, like intentional pixelization, um, to be able to tell this is indeed an illustration and not a real photograph. But if it's too real, people will not be able to interpret the image as a reference instead of a real portrait of just somebody. At the same time, the face cannot be completely digitally rendered as Dr. Wilkinson needs the public to see this face as real, as believably human, to solicit the urgency of their gaze. To keep this tight human threshold, she must use real facial features. So each of the faces that make up these are actually cut and copied out of anthropological archives and photographic databases. She harvests from like anthropological books and portrait books, eyebrows, hairlines, noses, eyes, mouths, chins, facial hair, and skin textures. She then intentionally erases the sources of these images so they become a sea of unidentified stray features floating away from the faces to which they were originally attached. She does this to limit her own cognitive racial bias and focus only on the distinct feature that she feels would best fit the face she is reconstructing. She also creates this massive mix so she will not be attempted to use too many features from one single face or she risks recreating an incident from an FBI investigation in 2011. During their search for Osama bin Laden, they created to the, they released to the public an, an image of a synthesized, older-looking bin Laden. But in doing so, they used too much of the face of Spanish political politician Gaspar Limazares. 
And many Spaniards recognized the Mazares, who became a kind of subject of derision. Um, and in the end, the FBI had to retract the image. For Wilkinson, this became a lesson to choose each feature separately. So in order to be able to compose Yusuf's face, Wilkinson looked through her unaccounted catalog of features before fixing on the faces of the eight people that constitute his one face. So his nose is not simply chosen because of a kind of Semitic nose type, um, but rather because of the way in which his nose uh, was at the age of six, along with the way his brothers and other noses developed in his family. His eyes were chosen because at a young age, they seemed to already to have eyes that sat shallow in their sockets, eyes where the lids protruded. Only the lips were significantly altered in Photoshop, puffed up a little to match the development of lips in his family. Yusuf al-Jawhari's body is buried in Jaramana in Syria. His memories, whether learnt or unlearned, whether planted or transmigrated, are now lodged in Basil's mind. And it's not empathy for which Basil feels for what Yusuf suffered or for what the generation suffered. It couldn't simply be empathy because empathy suggests otherness. Basil is not the search for understanding but the full embodiment of another person. It is not that he can feel another individual's pain, but that individuality itself here become undermined. And this is why the face of many, made of many nameless faces is somehow for me, maybe not the perfect portrait of Yusuf, because we still haven't found anyone that looked like that in Basil's archive. So it might not be the perfect portrait of Yusuf, but it is the perfect portrait of Natak itself and the kind of witness that the natak produces. Witnesses who leak into other bodies, who bleed across generation and potentially sectarian divides, forcing new pathways to the production of history that have otherwise been sealed. And these are the final remarks. As a de facto political leader of the Druze community of reincarnation believers, Jumblad has the least possibility of all civil war era politicians to denounce the validity of such claims. That's because the base he represents believe in reincarnation. So he cannot say it's nonsense, right? The other factions in Lebanon who represent people who do not believe in reincarnation are quite, would be quite adept at denouncing this as irrational and nonsensical. But within the religious part of the community, Natak holds a distinct validity as a form of witnessing, and not only really in the religious part, in the, in the kind of traditions of that community. Nata calls a distinct validity as a form of witnessing. However, not just anyone can make such claims. There exist theological protocols that determine whether or not the Natak of a returned witness are credible. Amongst them, one must first and foremost have to have shown distinct signs of xenoglossy uh, before the age of five. So you have to have announced some of those memories before you're five. Another is that the date of one's death and the date, date of one's death in the past life and the date of one's birth in the current life must match. And this is what would be called establishing a chain of custody in the, in the legal terms, which is the essential chronological documentation that records the sequence, control, transfer, analysis, and disposition of evidence. Essentially, everything that is done and whoever came into contact with that piece of evidence must be listed for the evidence to be presented. This protects the evidence from contamination, 
And in this case, or, or from being tampered with, right? In this case, it protects the memory from being tampered with. The ascertaining that the memory was touched by no one before it was first uttered by this reincarnated subject. That the memory is a direct transmigration, not something planted in the cortex by other means. The chain of custody in the case of Basil Abishahin is broken. There is a three-year gap between Basil's birth and Yusuf's death. We don't know where the soul went during this time. Should Basil's Natak become a threat to the PSP, this would be their best chance at silencing him. The break in the chain of custody, this unknown intermediary life, would be used to declassify Basil's status of witnessing from direct experience to hearsay, from first-party testimony to third-party testimony, thus proclaiming the contamination of his memory, suggesting that they were learned or planted or somehow entered his mind in a, in a uh, non-transmigration, not through the path of transmigration. However, and this is a warning to the PSP, seeking to delegitimize Basel's Natak risks legitimizing Natak itself as a form of testimony. Debating it, even if against it, under the terms of testimony, would be tantamount to admitting that such forms of testimony can be debated politically. Hence, if you remember the many missed encounters that I described before with the leader of this party, right? The almost discussing this issue. The, you, see, you see what I mean? The place of this missed encounter, it's very important. So the kind of testimony that they would, they would legitimize, should they, should they even speak against it, is not a direct testimony to a singular event nor an expert testimony relaying specialized knowledge to a specific field, but something far more dangerous to this political elite. Testimony by a witness who is in a unique position to speak to ceaseless violence, a witness to a long and continuous crime that leaks across generations and even threatens their ability to steal the future, threatens their future profits. So Basel's missing years make him an imperfect witness. And yet to use this to dissuade people from the validity of Basel's natak is to simultaneously open a channel of audibility for a new category of witness to emerge, the long witness. And Basel is not the only one to return. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for that really inspiring talk and very thought provoking too. Um, I'd just like to uh, say to the audience, if you have any uh, questions uh, for Lawrence, if you could please drop them into the Q&A um, and I would be happy to discuss them with him. Um, but I've got lots of <laughs> different uh, comments. Um, so maybe one of the things I'll, I'll start with was um, with the uh, photographs of before and after. Um, mm. And one of the things that really occurred to me about that when you were speaking was this idea that certain figures become segmented inside the architecture 
Um, oh. And then also the other point that this idea, I was thinking that there's like a shrinkage in the photographs. You were talking about a compression, but I also got a sense of a shrinkage in that he was very careful as to his positioning within the shots and um, both in terms of not to kind of include, as you said, that particular um, cafe that you uh, that you mentioned because it was a, um, a particular location um, group, but then also the way in which um, the, the kind of the streets had changed too, which didn't give him accessibility. So in that kind of reconstruction of the photograph, there was also um, uh, a new kind of narrative being created because it was an impossibility of being able to, to recreate that, and there's a kind of shrinking in his own kind of angles that. He he was um, that he was taking what Jeff had. but at the same time this idea of a sediment really kind of echoed with your idea of um, this idea of the past um, and these um, um, histories being sealed so um, you know this kind of the, the the noises are still there but it's being sealed off it's 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 um, it's being kind of yeah that kind of sealing and, su um, and, and suppression in that kind of way so <laughs> I wonder if you would like to kind of uh, speak to that because it was particularly kind of interesting how those juxtapositions and then how you were saying that kind of question of return with that building that returned through the bombing so this kind of uh, almost cyclical that also comes into play yeah um that's really a fantastic point tina and i think um yeah i mean you get at the crux of it uh and there's actually one image I didn't speak about, um, which really speaks to your uh, reading of positions. Let me just uh, open that one. Um, and I end. I, I usually end the the uh, that section with it. I'll just uh, quickly show it to you. It's this one here. Uh, you see mm -hmm. that? Uh, here you go. Uh, and yeah, also just as you're bringing them up, oh, sorry, it's really this one, this how one. the figures yeah. disappear too. There's like a disappearance of the figure. Um, mm. You know that they're they're when they're as you said they're kind of on the back of that truck and really kind of feature them and that kind of disappearance of them. Yeah, the idea, and and yeah, I mean that, that that's key because um, there was a. There was a re that essentially speaks to the rewriting of, of the history, what they thought they were participating in and what they would end up being known for or not known for or taken out from any kind of history. There's a total disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, and in that way, that's where this sort of idea of the crime of peace emerges, because it's not necessarily about the war. And none of this is about the war, actually. It's about now and it's about what's going on. And it's about how this history is essentially rewritten. Um, and you and you can that these moments make it visible. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, and then to speak about like his position that that's exactly it. And I actually tried to structure the images um, uh, in where they start to become less and less convincing as before and after images that the streets of the, the current conditions stop them, uh, stop him from, from being able to create those images. Um, and, uh, and, but, but despite he tries, so for example, this manhole 
is the same one that's actually under that car here. And what I say is, okay, well, if you remembered lucidly dying once, you wouldn't either put your tripod there again, right in the middle of oncoming traffic. And I think this, all these things, the sort of impossibility to create some of these images are part of the, the kind of conditions uh, that I speak about, that, he, that the evidence is him, um, is uh, him as, um, is him, is actually Basel himself, right? And mm-hmm. so the impossibility to produce these images, to, to stand in the position of where, he, where, he, where Yusuf al-Jawri may have stood in his past life, um, is part of those is part of what reveals those conditions and that disconnect between um, what people were doing in that war and what we now the kind of discourse we're now allowed uh, and and uh, we are uh, you know able to 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 the kind of forms which which in which those the, those histories are allowed to kind of emerge within of and and be spoken uh, about to. I think also really interesting, just as you had those images up too, is this kind of this kind of um, longing or this kind of question of 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 returnee that you also kind of um, spoke about. So often, kind of in the case of all of history, this idea of return or returning to locations or returning to like um, um, you know spaces of trauma or and this idea of the recreation or, or this idea of coming to this kind of authentic spot. But this really kind of brings up the impossibility of that. Um, um, and the mm-hmm. kind of impossibility of the returnee uh, uh, as well, and that how that kind of comes um, uh, to, to, to the fore. But that also, as you said, that these things are kind of sedimented in um, in that space, and you have all those details. You said like the like the building that becomes kind of dressed over, or the manhole. Um, uh, mm. I mean, it, it, you know, it's interesting you use that word because. I mean, it means something in Lebanon. Means something totally different to what it means in uh, Palestine, yeah. And the way we yeah. think of the return, um, yeah. Because it, it's actually kind of um, a derisable concept, the returnee. Because, for example, returnee is people who um, never lived the war, um, but came back in the 90s, just after the war finished. Those people are called returnees. And in fact, Basel is a returnee. And the, the thing is that often those people, you know, they're, you know, at that moment, the nicer schools were opening. There was a kind of, there was the kind of beginning of Rafi al-Hariri, trying to sort of neoliberalize the country, trying to create this uh, space for the diaspora to return. Um, and so they were coming with other passports. They were coming for, uh, you know, their parents were coming to work in new, you know, in uh, burgeoning economy, right? And so there was this sort of disconnect by people who, people who had lived the war, been in Lebanon uh, at that time, and this kind of class of returnees, which is a sort of, it was a, it's a kind of nouveau riche kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very interesting that Basel is actually a returnee and a returned historian. <laughs> And all of these things at once. And somehow, yeah, he, he definitely um, encapsulates that. Mm-hmm. Um, as do, you know, I and many other people who ha- had that similar experience. And, it, and it, it's about this sort of, me, returnees live with this big hole often that they don't really know where, you know, they kind of landed somewhere. You know, often as children, 
um, you know, taken out. They were living in Canada or Latin America or wherever they were um, and just kind of like landed there. Maybe even people in the, in the uh, chat, uh, in the audience, sorry, I'm totally brain dead now, but uh, maybe those people actually, some of them are returnees or have experience or, or interface with, with the kind of returnee condition. And I do think it's interesting because that is also a kind of, that was also one of those kind of artifacts of peace and the way in which peace was, was negotiated and sedimented. Um, before it had a, before peace actually could emerge or before any kind of just peace could even be spoken about. Um, and so they, that, that word returnee plays a big part in the story. And in the previous lecture, I kind of go into that, the kind of double returnee, the triple returnee, uh, whatever mm. we'd want to call him. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's out of there now, but that's, yeah, it's a really interesting point. And that kind of gap with the past too, that kind of, as you said, that kind of hole that they feel that, that needs to be filled or that, or that continual absence that they have mm. a sense that they, um, that they have. I think maybe um, it's an experience across, you know, um, different countries um, uh, in the region. I kind of wanted to tie in that imagery too to the... Um, um, the constructed, the, the the reconstructed image that you've showed um, uh, at the end, and how you were saying that it, it had to be believable but not too real. Um, the way in which it's kind of it was pixelated. The way in which um, um, uh, she, you know, she created this composite type. Um, taken from so many kind of different references that really kind of also spoke to um, phrenology of, uh, uh, of, the, of the kind of, you know, 19th century and that kind of typology that they also had. Um, uh, and the way that kind of those slippages were kind of mistakes could be making as, uh, made as, uh, as, as you highlighted. So that kind of also that construction of the image, because um, um, we kind of have, you can kind of see kind of two examples there between the reconstructed images where he, um, uh, you know, before and after images, and then also with that. So those two kind of juxtapositions become um, really interesting around the believable um, yeah. too. Exactly. And, and what it means to, yeah, I suppose, yes, exactly. The way in which, if it was, if it was an image of him, it 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 wouldn't be almost it wouldn't be appropriate. That it has to mm -hmm. be this digitized, pixelated type of image, so that we can somehow kind of relate or identify, or even not feel threatened by those kind of images. It's intriguing the way in which the kind of psychological factors kind of work in those composites. Exactly, and they're they're designed to be kind of and yeah they're not portraits mm. but they're also not not portraits <laughs> uh they're, they're sort of active in this very different way that we're used to sort of looking at images and um and also they're they're these they they need to be plural they need they need a certain level of generis genericism i think that's the kind of need that i'm compelling with this talk also i, I feel that it's necessary, these, these becoming plural and accepting kind of plurality as Basel has wholeheartedly um, with quite radical and astonishing results is perhaps what we need. 
Um, yeah. I, I think I think too with those images, it's the idea that they kind of give us also the space to be able to recognize a person in them, so that we because of mm. the kind of typology that you can you can see the person with. In, in there. So you, you find the person within the image because it's a generic type, which is really, um, which is really intriguing and kind of has implications of, you know, how, to, you know, how we're moving into kind of facial recognition and um, all the kind of mishaps around that as, um, uh, uh, as well. So, um, you know, and how it really speaks to, <laughs> um, you know, a century uh, before too. Um, in this, in this, um, um, you know, typing of um, uh, uh, of people. <laughs> yeah, though, 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 I, I guess the, the approach is quite different. I mean, it yeah. has to be said. She's yeah. not trying to spec. She's not actually producing any kind of certainty. It's sort of just throwing That's an it. image. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the di- I don't think it's diagnostic. I don't think they're diagnostic images or trying to make some kind of um, hypotheses. Uh, they're That's much true. more speculative. Um, and there's, the more speculative they are, or the threshold of speculation is, is their power, is the way in which they're effective. Yeah. yeah. But the way they can kind of pull on so many different resources, uh, you've mentioned, you know, the kind of um, archives of books that they go to to draw up this imagery is mm. quite... Uh, <laughs> It's quite phenomenal. Yeah. I have a I have a question here in the chat to you from Sarah uh, and Yahya. She says, "How do activist groups in Lebanon now deal with the idea of the long witness in the context of the August Fourth explosion? Meaning, is this notak uh, taken as a legitimate resource that can strengthen the revolution?" Are activist groups on the lookout for reincarnated witnesses that might be found in the next years? Um, no, I mean, right now, no, I, that wouldn't be possible to say that activist groups are on the lookout for reincarnated witnesses. But I think there are other ways in which we could manifest these long, uh, the, the kind of idea of the long witness. Um, uh, other than reincarnation, I think it emerges through someone like Bassa who lived through, you know, who, who, as I say before, has lived through these two, uh, you know, what we could uh, punctuate it by two events that occur to the, one in which he died as a child soldier and the other in which we understand now that children, uh, future has been stolen. So I think making these long crimes is essential. Breaking forms of, individuation, breaking forms of um, um, uh, um, essentializing, right? For example, August 4th is already being um, exceptionalized. And that might come out wrong in the sense that I do recognize, of course, that it was an exceptional event that was terrible. And yet, the morning of August 4th, you know, before 6 p.m. on that day when the explosion happened, most people didn't have electricity in the house. 
probably there was, if you were lucky, there was running water going on in the middle of August. Uh, there was probably Israeli drones above one's head. Um, there was uh, no, the night before you, there would have been no uh, street lights at all at that point. So it's not as if, you know, unless we understand and connect the deaths of the person who the night before died because a car hit them because there was no visibility on the road with the explosion, i.e. that those are part of exactly the same crime, only then are we able to understand this thing. And already what you see in the dhikra of the explosion is it's totally exceptionalized. Where were you August 4th? Right? And, and that's what I'm trying to say. Where was I? I was in my house without electricity. Without, I mean, you know what I'm trying to say? That it's not, it's not, um, you see what I mean? It's this idea of a kind of the production of always these sort of individual or singular, singular events. And I think and it's isolating about, it. Yeah, and isolate and forms of isolationism, which are just so powerful. And which, in fact, even you see people in general narrative. Even, even if they think they're activating in forms of resistance by focusing on, on that one explosion um, in the manner in which it was for the, uh, for the um, uh, dhikra, the memorial, uh, in the year later, was so, you know, in just a short year, it had been totally isolated from everything that was going on around it, right? Between the total economic collapse. That's another thing. On August 4th, 2020, that morning, you couldn't withdraw your money from the bank, right? I mean, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. I think it's not think just it also happens, about, yeah. It happens with a lot of events in region that it becomes such a focus on the event itself that it doesn't look at the wider, as you said, contextual factors that are that are happening simultaneously and continuously all uh, all around them. Whereas the event becomes the um, focus. Um, uh, exactly, and the longer we can stretch that acts of witnessing. Mm -hmm. the more stronger they become. So that's why I'm focusing on the work with Vassal because it even goes back to bef before these sort of the, the crimes of peace were negotiated and settled, the crimes of peace for which today we live, the crimes of peace which produced something like August 4th. So I think, yeah, you know, okay, I, I kind of stretched that witness out in one day, okay, the morning or the night before August 4th, to the explosion of August 4th. But if, you, if we continually pull that out, and we can because, I mean, those are the same people. It's not even a stretch, right? It's not even their children right now. Some of them are children, but uh, in the party I'm speaking about, it's the same person involved. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I really think, uh, yeah. Of course, it's not about the, it's not about the, the, the reincarnated witness is the answer for the revolution, no. But it, I think the long thinking of other ways in which long witnessing can manifest and speak to what Basel is doing uh, could be could be really important. I think you you, you also raised this you know is that um, this idea that the witness who knows too much um, that really kind of uh, not my idea. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was it was very resonant. This idea of the wit- the witness who knows too much, and then um, kind of the the linkage with that, or linking across the um, you know uh, um, a lot of your work is this idea of you know the contamination of memory. So this kind of tying in that you know that how you were speaking of how it's so kind of key for these memories not to be contaminated and then it's before the age of um of five and, and someone has to have had the these kind of um not not um 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 uh, kind of moments um and and this idea that it's not planted it's not contaminated but this whole kind of question of memory and contamination just kind of really resonated with me the, the, this kind of impossibility of memory not being contaminated <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the contamination is what's important. So it's, yeah. that's, why, that's why I I'm not discrediting Basil, you know, when I say that he's not the perfect witness. I think actually that's it makes an even it gives another kind of sharpness or there's something that's important about that too that reveals a sort of problem in the system, the problem of what this natak is doing. Um, and so, yeah, I think these contaminations are interesting. The, the potential for, yeah, a leakage. Leakage is all about contamination. Um, and the fact that he has actively pursued, I mean, he would tell you he doesn't remember that much. A lot of what he he's done is to re, reconstitute those memories through photography, through interviews with people, through... So, I mean, that that's clear that a lot of it now is learned, but there's a kind of inseparability between then what he knows and what he he's learned. Um, and, um, and that's interesting. And as I said before, his research and his reincarnation become this sort of inseparable agents in the, in the production of him as a witness and, and allow him to produce a network of people who he's amassed a network, a, a collection of objects, which no one else has managed to do a collection of photographs so yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. it's incredible his access that he's been able to have through this. The way it's kind of opened him up spaces and that kind of trust um, that it, that fostered um, that he spoke about that people gave him access to this kind of um, imagery and photographs and um, information that actually then becomes really a, a very kind of um, extraordinary kind of resource um, uh, as well for the kind of narrating of the past. But this, can, this as you said, that, that, that it also kind of becomes that he, he doesn't, as you said, he doesn't remember, but then he's, then he, that he has all these um, memories through these photographs, through these encounters, through these interviews. Um, and that, also seems to speak to a lot of cases of kind of memories of um, uh, of war that different generations then kind of have also across the region. It's kind of the way in which the because I think this example of Nasser really speaks to the idea of inherited memories and their embodiment. Um, in um, yeah, uh, uh, across different experiences, I think you know, I can I can also kind of think of uh, you know the Palestinian refugees of people who have never experienced those um, those walls or even particular locations, but that kind of um, 
the way in which those memories become in, in, in embodied uh, uh, too is, um, uh, you know, I kind of see those things kind of echoing across the region. And I, and I think there's still to come, unfortunately, with what we're seeing across so many different countries here as well. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that I think, and this is why I start with this dessert, <laughs> which is that there remains these sort of things that are impossible to speak across generations, I think, even if we're inheriting those, you know, um, I'm very, I'm very careful not to use the word trauma, but we're inheriting these memories and these disturbances. Um, or le and even leakages from yeah. and even leakages, yeah, yeah and, from person and, uh, to person. And um, exactly, and so so what I think is inter you know, and, and you 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 mentioned this, and this is a term from the writer and artist Walid Sadeh. The witness who knows too much, right, to speak, right, um, and he, he makes the claim that those witnesses and invariably end up exiling themselves. Um, and Basel, I've actually seen Basel interface with witnesses who know too much, not just from who he's meeting in his past life, but for people in our extended family who were there, right, and who now live outside, right? So the return, when the returnees came in, there was also a kind of inf uh, flux, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who left, of course. And um, and it does, it is, it, it is interesting to see, I, I suppose this is why, yeah, I suppose trauma would be defined as kind of ineffable, as unspeakable. And I think, this in many ways, in small ways, is a kind of de-traumatizing process because Basel has no problem to speak. It's not a problem of, of a loss of diagnostic capacity or a loss of speech function to, to even, or even kind of a loss of compartmentalization, a way of actually understanding what you're experiencing. It's very clear. Um, and yet, so he's kind of making, you know, impossible Dialogue, ineffability, speakable in these small interactions, um, and I think these—that's what's—that's uh, what's interesting in this sort of cross-generational thing. Um, yeah, because yeah, I think then, he has those the, yeah. he has those gaps because he has those missing. Yeah, and he's searching for it. it it's not a case of, as you said, with the, the witness who knows too much, who then kind of becomes silenced or becomes quiet or mm -hmm. becomes kind of sedimented. It's more that because um, uh, he's kind of searching in those spaces where he has that missing thing that it doesn't allow that kind of that speech to, to, to occur and for, her to, and for him to kind of listen to... to, to to, to, to stories and accounts from the people he interviews and collects from. Yeah, but on the other side of what you're saying, um, and this is this is also why you know reincarnation is not a blanket term for liberation or emancipation, is that we're seeing increasingly um, intergenerational trauma kind of weaponized. Right mm -hmm. uh, in Zionist discourse, uh, it's 
you know, it, it used the kind of science of intergenerational trauma, of which there is, you know, and I do not dispute that people who lived the Holocaust gave, you know, it gave to their children uh, some of that um, trauma. I don't dispute that at all. But where, where it concerned the state, where it concerns the defense of, uh, of territory, of power, of territorial expansion, that's where you start to see it weaponized. And you start to see this idea of the eternal victim, right? Um, one that could never commit a crime like the South Africans did in, yes. uh, like the white Africanas did, right? Yeah. Um, or, 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 or other such uh, colonial uh, forms of segregation, separation, uh, or forms of occupation. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Almost absolves, it absolves them of any right. crime too. Yeah. And yeah. we're seeing that on a kind of military level. We're seeing it applied in, uh, you know, from, you know, talking heads uh, who are military representatives. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is, it's sort of, it, it's interesting to see it. And, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a world in which also what Basel is saying plays into a totally sectarian hand, right? which it could be totally weaponized by a wholly different form of justice that I didn't speak about, which is a kind of latent justice that could emerge through sectarian violence, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I'm careful not to focus on some of the things that could do that, like the images that are of war crimes and these kind of events. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is a fragile thing. It's not a, yeah. it's not a given either. I'm just an optimist and I speak optimistically. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you were kind of also, I also kind of picked up this idea that you're mentioning, this idea that, you know, with the amnesty, it kind of, you know, it actually created a lot of um, noise and this kind of, you know, it, you're really, it's very evocative, these ideas of, of ceiling and then noise and this idea of then kind of gossip and whispering that, that, that takes place um, after that. So um, uh, the way in which it isn't cancelled out, but it re kind of remains there in these kind of different ways in which, um, and, and even kind of the way you spoke of it as kind of being this cloud um, um, and particularly the way in which the cloud is now kind of used for kind of storage. <laughs> it's uh, become such an inferior kind of um, idea that that's where, you know, that it's, a, it's another archive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, noise, but, noise seals, right? Noise can yeah. also seal, yeah. yeah so. Noise can also I, silence. But I mean, running really across all your work is this kind of really questioning of uh, uh, of the witness. I mean, uh, you, you know, from you, and and particularly all these kind of questions of leakages and and ruptures um, uh, in that. You know, with your um, with the Nuremberg uh, um, project you presented to us and the faculty talk as well and um, the recreations in the prison. So this kind of way in which witnessing and kind of the, the questioning of, uh, uh, of memory really kind of resonates across all the, all the projects. Yeah, that, no, that's really well said. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think... I think uh, People get me messed up as a sound artist. I've never made a sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But, um, so thanks for seeing the work. Yeah, moment. no, I can, I can really kind of see. And all those kind of slippages, which really kind of then make you kind of question the, you know, the, the histories that are narrated to us and the realities that we believe in, then we kind of then makes us um, really kind of think back on, on those. <laughs> okay. I think we're probably up uh, for time. <laughs> We've taken a lot of your time this evening. Um, my pleasure. Thank you my so, pleasure. so much. It's been an absolute pleasure um, and honor having you and, and talking to you about your work. And we look forward to your future projects as well. <laughs> thank you so much, Tina. Thank you. Thank for you. Being so attentive. Amazing. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Okay. okay. Good night, everyone. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.